Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we're passionate about the beautiful simplicity and transformative power of the gospel. Hey, if you're new or if you haven't already and you're enjoying these videos, I'd encourage you to hit subscribe to become a part of this community. And if you really want to stay up to date, be sure to hit that notification bell as well so you don't miss a video. Well, I'm excited you're here today. Today you're in for a really fun interview with someone who's super bright, but super down to earth and just fun to talk with. Uh, you might have seen his stuff elsewhere, but today I'm interviewing Father Gregory Pine, a Dominican priest and a doctoral student, and we're talking about the topic of divine simplicity. Now, it can be a difficult topic, and I get that. And so I tried as much as I could while we were going to ask clarifying questions, hopefully that you can kind of get your hands around this. And one of my favorite things about this is the way that he relates these this seemingly abstract concept to tangible things about how this shows God's intimacy and allow, and we can put it in a worshipful context. I hope that's really helpful for you. I know it was helpful for me. So we'll get to that in just a second, but real quick, I want to say thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly to this channel. Thank you so much for your support. Because of your support, not only does this channel continue to be sustainable, it allows it to grow into exciting and new Thing. So if you want to support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity, or you can use the link in the description down below. I also want to thank our sponsor for today, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. And they do this by creating these beautiful Bibles that will help you read more slowly, more contemplatively, you know, Lectio Divina and these, these classic ways of reading, that I think will help you get a lot out of your Bible study. So if you want to check them out, you can do so by going to kindredapostle.com and be sure to use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order today. And with all that being said, here is the interview. Well, here we go. Father Gregory Pine is a doctoral candidate in dogmatic theology at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. He served previously as assistant director of campus outreach for the Thomistic Institute. Born and raised near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he attended the Franciscan University of Steubenville and entered the Order of Preachers upon graduating. He was ordained a priest in 2016 and holds an STL from the Dominican House of Studies. He is the co-author of Marian Consecration with Aquinas from Tan Books and has published articles in Nova et Vetera, The Thomist, and Angelicum. He is also a regular contributor to the podcasts Pints with Aquinas and God's Flaming. Father Gregory Pine, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be. Well, it's a pleasure. I came across uh, your work from Matt Frad's channel and have really enjoyed uh, what you're doing over there and the live streams now weekly. I'll be sure to link to stuff like that, but uh, really enjoyed those. In fact, I think that's how we came in touch was from watching one of those live streams. That is indeed. Yeah. You wrote in like the live stream question box, would you come on gospel simplicity? And I was like, yes, slash say more. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I had looked into it. And I was like, I don't know his email. And I thought about just texting Matt, but I was like, Meh, you know, I'm watching the stream. I may as well, uh, see, you know, put the, put the pressure of all these people watching and, you know, strong harm him into coming on the channel. So uh, exactly. Welcome. Yeah. They can all see it. And if you say no, you're a bad person. <laughs> uh, nothing like a little good social pressure to uh, get you to say. <laughs> well, now that you're here, though, uh, no, yep. seriously, thank, thanks so much for being here. And uh, just before we jump into it a bit, I'd love to hear a little bit about you. How did you end up as a Dominican? And most of my audience will know what that means, but there might be some that think, like, does that mean he hails from the Dominican Republic? Or what is a Dominican? And uh, how did you end up as one? Sure, yeah. Um, so I am Catholic. I was raised Catholic, and I, um, let's see, so I was in college, and um, I went to a lecture. Sorry, at this point, my story is very uncompelling. They're like, so far, he stammered and then said, um, and I'm not getting what a Dominican is. Uh, so my freshman year of college, I heard a lecture about St. Thomas Aquinas, um, whom people may or will have heard of, so St. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican as well. And the lecture described how St. Thomas um, kind of sums up or, or, or encapsulates the nature of love. And I was very taken with that. So I started reading about St. Thomas Aquinas. And when I did, um, I encountered this form of life. So it's um, I'm Catholic, it's Catholic. Uh, and then within the Catholic church, there are um, priests who are associated with a particular place. So you'd call them 
diocesan priests is often how we refer to them, or uh, what you would hear called like the secular clergy. Um, and then there are priests and brothers and sisters who would be associated with uh, religious orders. So it's not as much bound to a particular place as it is this kind of way of living the gospel. So a Dominican friar is um, one who is consecrated to this particular form of life. And um, the kind of emphasis or flair is on study of sacred truth and preaching and teaching. So that's, you know, like we, we refer to them as charisms, uh, which word obviously can mean a variety of things. Uh, but we, we talk about it as like, what, what graces did God give to this particular saint who founded this particular order? Um, and then how are we as a result called to live uh, in light of that? Um, so yeah, the Dominican order was founded by St. Dominic in 1216. Uh, St. Dominic died in 1221, so we're celebrating 800 years of his death, which is kind of, yeah, it's, that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, so I'm a Dominican. That's a long and circuitous answer. <laughs> no, that's great. And it sounds characteristically Dominican to call an answer circuitous. Um, so we'll just, uh, yep. we'll go with that. Uh, but th thank you so much for being here. And uh, today we're going to be talking a bit about divine simplicity, which I'll be honest, I'll put my cards on the table a bit. Uh, growing up as an evangelical, I, I mean, I think I first heard about it in a systematic theology class once I started a theology degree, but divine simplicity is not something I grew up thinking like, hey, this is this really important thing and I want to know more about it. Um, but as I've gotten into these conversations, I, I, I've seen it come up and I've tried to do some reading on it to learn more, but I would, I'm really excited to kind of hear your perspective and uh, just get to learn more about divine simplicity and invite others into that today. So could we start by saying, uh, just defining what is divine simplicity? Sure. So simplicity is used in these conversations to mean that God is not composed or that God is not made up of parts. Well, there you have it. So... <laughs> Um, what would it mean for God to have parts as, as someone, I mean, so if, if divine simplicity is God doesn't have parts, when we're thinking about God, um, what, what is this trying to safeguard? Why, what, yeah, what are they getting at here with God doesn't have parts? Were people going around arguing God does have parts and we needed to correct them? Or what, what is, what does that even mean for God to have a part? Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, people take this question on in different ways. I am a nerd and I love St. Thomas Aquinas. So when presented with an opportunity to take a question on as St. Thomas Aquinas has or had taken a question on, I typically go in that direction. So I'm just going to give one way of approaching the question. So this is not the only way, obviously. <clears throat> um, but the way that St. Thomas does it is he kind of goes through and lists all the different ways in which a thing can be composed. Um, and St. Thomas thinks like a 13th century uh, scholastic theologian. So he's going to borrow some of the main categories from like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, and then, you know, some of the fathers of the church and some of his contemporaries. So he asked, like he starts by asking whether God has or is a body. So that would one, that would be one way in which a thing is composed, uh, namely of body and soul. Uh, and then he he goes through other options, which are a little more abstruse. And I don't think that, um, yeah, they're necessarily the most exciting or sexy of St. Thomas's writings to plod through. Uh, but he talks about whether God is composed of uh, like nature and supposit, right? Um, which is a different way in which something can subsist. So those, yeah, okay, well, we'll leave those aside. I guess the the coolest one, uh, or one of the coolest of the articles in the question that he dedicates in the Summa Theologiae to divine simplicity is whether God is composed of essence and existence. So that's kind of like, um, I guess it's where the conversation comes to its culmination. Um, it's where the conversation becomes most uh, engaging uh, for contemporary readers, I think, because there's a kind of longstanding debate among readers of St. Thomas Aquinas as to how important this distinction really is. And there's some people that say like, it's everything. And then there are other people who say like, it really doesn't matter that much. <laughs> um, I tend to be somewhere in between, but a little bit more towards the former. It is super important. And so St. Thomas is trying to prove basically that God's very nature is to be, right? So God's very nature is beingness, as it were, which is a somewhat improper and confusing way to speak. Uh, but once you get in the habit of saying it enough, it sounds right. 
it's like the opposite of when you say a word so many times that it sounds wrong. It's just like you just keep saying it and then you'll and you'll feel good about it. Um, so effectively, for like what it means to be God um, is just to beness. All right. So so another way of saying it is God exhausts all that there is of being. So there's no being that falls outside of the bounds of God. I mean, whenever you describe these things, you're going to have to appeal to uh, metaphors or images or similes of some sort, all of which have limitations, um, but it helps you shine some light on the mystery. So um, yeah, seeing as God's nature is to be, there is no being that's foreign from him. Okay. Um, and the real kind of like concern, I suppose, with this particular question is um, if God were not to be, then there would have to be some reason for which he is to be. Um, because if it weren't of his very nature to be, then you'd have to account for the fact that he is. And once you get into the business of accounting for the fact, then you're talking about causality, then you're talking about potentiality, then you're talking about limitations of some sort. And then you end up with something that isn't God or uh, looks a lot different than the God who is described in scriptural revelation and the church's tradition. So I think that's like, that's kind of the heart of the matter for, for St. Thomas. Interesting. And so for a point of clarity here, and cause I've, I feel like I haven't said it enough times where it's starting to make sense. I, I've heard people saying like, God is to be, to be. And I'm like that you, you said it like it made sense, but it didn't make sense. That wasn't you. <laughs> um, but when you say that there is no, and I, I don't want to misquote you here so you can fix it. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. There's no being outside of God. Is that what, is that what you said there? So mm-hmm. when I first hear that, which I don't think is what uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is getting at, but it sounds like kind of pantheism, panentheism of God is just kind of splattered throughout the universe and everything is God, um, which maybe if like I've got some more new age leaning people listening, they might be like, yes, that, that's, that sounds great. Maybe I'll read Aquinas now. Um, I don't get the sense that he's getting at, but could you maybe make a distinction there or help me through that? Yeah, sure. So St. Thomas actually asks about that in the question dedicated to divine simplicity uh, because he's reading St. Augustine who um, is concerned about some of his contemporaries who basically treat God like the world soul. Um, St. Thomas also uh, contends in that particular article with a contemporary of his named David of Dinant. And David of Dinant said that God was like prime matter, like the kind of primal stuff it constitutes all that is. And St. Thomas doesn't really have any patience for that. He's like, no, this is crazy talk. Um, so when I say that there's no being that falls outside of the bounds of God, what I'm saying is that everything that is participates in God's being. So maybe you've come across the book by uh, Father Robert Sokolowski. It's called The God of Faith and Reason. Um, but in one of the opening chapters of that book, he talks about what he calls the Christian distinction. And effectively, it amounts to this that God plus creation is not greater than God. So God, you know, is eternal. Uh, So from all eternity, the Father begets the Son, and Father and Son breathe forth the Holy Spirit. Um, But uh, there's no addition, as it were, to like the cumulative total of being when God decides to create. Because everything that is, is just a limited participation in the very divine life or divine nature, as it were. Um, So here, you know, like when St. Thomas talks about this, he borrows heavily from St. Augustine, who has this treatise, um, I think it's like on 83 questions is the name of it. It's a real cool, catchy title, um, in which St. Augustine describes the divine ideas. Now, mind you, there's like a big um, pagan backdrop to this question. So it comes up in Plato, it comes up in Aristotle, it comes up in the subsequent Neoplatonic tradition, like in... um, Proclus and Pseudo-Dionysius and the author of the Liber de Causis. Um, but but St. Thomas's big source is St. Augustine, and this is where you get this notion of the divine ideas. So God knows himself, right? So God, God doesn't draw knowledge from anything without. So God's very nature is to be, right? And his very nature is furthermore to, to live, says uh, the Neoplatonic tradition. And furthermore, it is to understand, you have this, what they call like a three, never mind, doesn't matter. But um, so esse vivere et intelligere. So, so God is to be, to live, and to understand. 
So God is his very act of understanding. He's actually the object of his understanding, as it were, too. So God knows all things in knowing himself. And effectively, God, in knowing himself, knows all of the ways in which his divine being can be shared in by creatures. So like he knows all of the limited ways in which his divine being can be participated. And to some of those things, you know, God conjoins his will, and that is what is. Um, so God knows them, and he knows them with a kind of creative causality. And those are the things that we encounter, you know, when kind of toddling here and there and everywhere. <clears throat> so when we look at things in the world, we're not looking at like additions to God, as it were. We're not looking like, okay, there was, there was X amount of being before God created, and now God created Y, and so now there's X plus Y amount of being. It's like, no, these, these things basically all have their being on loan from God. Uh, they all have their being as God's gift because God is to be and everything else has to be from God. So that, I think, is the basic idea. Okay. And to bring it back to that very succinct first definition, when we say that they share in it, we're not saying that they have like a part of God's existence because God doesn't have parts. And so it's it's a sharing in it, um, but it's not a God kind of mattered throughout the universe. Yeah, so St. Thomas will use the language of participation, which in Latin, parti capere, it just means partem capere, it just means like to have a part, but not in the like base or crass material way, as you just described. So it's to have in a <clears throat> partial or particular way what exists otherwise in a universal or total way, as it were. Um, the helpful mnemonic that I use to remember the definition for participation is putt-putt, putt-putt golf, baby. So P-P-U-T, uh, what, what exists in partial or particular ways, uh, you know, in, in our experience of things, <clears throat> ultimately draws its being from what exists universally or totally in its um, principal instantiation. So God's very nature is to be, and we all are limited expressions of to be. So it's not that we have a part of God, it's just that being is contracted, is the language that St. Thomas uses, according to our particular essence. So God is just to be, whole, entire, and unfettered to be. But we kind of bottle to be, as it were, into the limited essence of a rational animal, of a human person. And as a result of which, we only give expression to to be in this one limited way. Um, so yeah. I think I think the like the language of contracted, while somewhat unhelpfully obscure, I, I, again it's it's also you know makes makes sense if you look at it long enough. <laughs> Just keep saying it. No, I, exactly. I think I see where you're getting at there, and that is helpful. And I like the mnemonic as well. I think many people will <laughs> will walk away remembering the putt putt uh, mnemonic mm. there. And so, whereas God does not have essence and existence, He is pure to be. We, and that we participate in his to be, we would have that distinction. We would have essence and existence, and we have causality then. Or there, there is a cause for us, which would be a problem if we had that for God. That's, is that putting all those pieces together? Right. So God's, um, so I guess, yeah, God's very, God has an essence, right? So, so God's essence is Godhead, <laughs> deity. And, um, but, but God's essence is his existence. So there's no distinction between the two. There's no division between the two. There's no composition of the two. So God's essence is his existence. And then we are, you know, our essence is to be a rational animal. And we each have a particular act of existence, a particular, like, um, if you think about our essence as what we are, you know, like humanity being the essence of man and woman, um, existence is kind of like what lights that up in a particular instance, right? So, so existence lights you up in a particular way. It lights me up in a particular way. It lights, you know, listener number 13 up in a particular way. Um, so, so existence isn't something that's like added to the essence, like, um, you know, something's could be added to me in the sense that like, so it's not an act be like, um, quality or quantity, right? So I'm like six feet three or six feet four. Um, or I am, you know, what would be a quality of me? <clears throat> I am, oh gosh, raspy voiced. All right. So those would be like 
two instances of things that get added to the substance of a rational animal. Existence isn't like that. It's not like, oh yeah, I had this like, you know, uh, I had this humanity essence over here and then I added existence to it and now it got like, you know, kind of different. So it's like humanity, but with a little twist. It's like, no, it, it's, it, what's, it's what brings that humanity forward. It's what, what expresses that humanity in its fullness in, you know, like in a real and subsisting way. So what we're saying is that God's very nature is that, right? To be fully expressed, um, to be whole and entire, uh, to be, to be, 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 be. Um, <laughs> sure, that's pellucid. No, that, that's helpful. And I, I, you know, I appreciate you uh, putting up with all the, the clarifying questions. Uh, hopefully, no, no, it's great. not I only help it. me, but help people listening on kind of, get get a hold of how these different terms work together um not everyone listening might read saint thomas aquinas in their free time some of them do uh, but uh so hopefully this is, is helpful because i know these topics can be a little abstract and difficult um which is why i think you know you talked at the beginning for some people this is really important and for some do these things matter and i think um you know i had someone come on and we talked about essence energies distinction and i'm a lot of people enjoyed it and a lot of people were like, this is just way too over my head. And so trying to make sure I'm uh, massaging the conversation in a, uh, in a meaningful way for everyone listening. One question I do want to ask because it comes up a lot is I hear this uh, distinction between, uh, I, I believe in divine simplicity, but not absolute divine simplicity. And there seems to be this emphasis put on that qualifier of absolute. Um, so is, is this a meaningful distinction? What are people getting at here and then for my catholic audience it, are they bound to a, a certain choice of those two right um the answer to the, both those questions <laughs> is i don't know um so i don't um i don't actually know the conversations about divine simplicity too well um and so as to what people uh mean by divine simplicity versus absolute divine simplicity i suspect that you know, everyone has their hangups with divine simplicity. And some of those hangups, you know, I'm not, I'm so hangup sounds like a freighted term, like I'm about to attack those people as effectively like weak, um, or just unwilling to pull the trigger on their divine attributes and blah, blah, blah. No, um, you, you might have hangups for any number of reasons. It might be bound up with your understanding of the incarnation. It might be bound up with your understanding of the Trinity. It might be bound up with your understanding of salvation and how it's communicated and stuff like that. And if you can't see another way to save the phenomena, except by compromising on divine simplicity, I could see how that would be, that would be a move. Um, so I suspect that the distinction between divine simplicity and absolute divine simplicity is probably related to that. How that plays out, I don't know. Um, but as for the Catholic position, it is defined uh, for Catholics that God is simple. Uh, but I don't know that the language of that is uh, so carefully crafted as to rule out, um, you know, kind of like orthodox rival traditions on the matter. Um, that's not to say like, you know, you got all kinds of wiggle rooms to so say whatever the heck you want. It is to say, though, that I think there's still room within the Catholic tradition for like a deepening of the understanding of divine simplicity um, and for arguing through some of these controverted points. Um, so yeah, I mean, within the Catholic church, uh, Thomism, right? So the philosophy and theology of St. Thomas Aquinas is often put forward as a, as a good way to think according to the mind of the church, but it's never really been, you know, kind of canonized as it were as the official teaching of the Catholic church. So, um, I think in, in my case, it's the type of thing where like, when I follow the discourse, I'm like, yeah, this is very convincing. And because I have been convinced of much of what St. Thomas teaches, and because it's so closely interlocking, I find myself convinced on a variety of points. Um, but, but others who aren't of the same kind of theological ilk, uh, maybe they're more fans of Blessed John Duns Scotus, or maybe they're more fans of contemporary 20th century theologians like the Nouvelle theologians, things like that, they, they just might want to kind of get off the bus before it ever really gets rolling down Divine Simplicity Street with St. Thomas Aquinas. So, um, yeah, I guess that's uh, that's more about how conversations take place in the Catholic tradition today than it is about Divine Simplicity, but there you have it. I think that's helpful, though. And I th so what I hear you saying is, as a Catholic, you, you're bound to Divine Simplicity, but you're not bound to a Thomistic 
understanding or to be a Thomist itself. And is that fair in itself there? Yep. That's a good characterization. Yeah. And I think if people want to learn more about this, to plug a channel you're frequently on, I believe, I think it was a fellow Dominican, uh, Father Peter Totalpin, is that his last name? Uh, was just on with Matt Fred talking about Palamism and Thomism and whether they can uh, be reconciled. So I, I can link to that if people are interested in that. Um, I watched that and it reminded me of how unintelligent I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. No, um, it, it was a, it was a great episode. Um, but I, I can imagine some people listening to this right now. And, uh, so they're, they're hearing all of this and they're trying to work through divine simplicity and, and maybe they're having a similar experience to me thinking like some of this is a little difficult, um, for those that feel like, like this is just a lot of philosophy and it's not really connected to scripture. Like they don't necessarily see scripture talking like this and they're wondering why this is so important. How would you respond to kind of that um, line of questioning of like, is this just philosophy completely divorced from scripture? Is this, you know, the scholastics with too much time on their hands? Yeah. So I would say um, one, no, (laughs) I, I think that it's important but I didn't really think that it was important until I studied it. Um, and so I think that there might be a temptation on the part of me and like other practitioners of this type of thought to talk what people call inside baseball, although I've never really understood what that means. Um, but like you begin to speak in a certain theological idiom and then you forget a little bit what your audience's sensitivities are. Right. So, so one critique that's often leveled against Thomism is that it's too much of a system, right? And as a result of which, it can actually be detrimental to like the liberty of thought required for Christian worship. So it kind of like it can quench the spirit, as it were. But I think that for me, uh, I can see, I can certainly see how that criticism would be leveled against it. Um, but also, like, I don't know, having read some of the some of the things that St. Thomas has written a handful of times, I have a greater sympathy and sensitivity <clears throat> for the kind of, what would one call it, uh, like worshipful or doxological movement of some of this thought. So like, for instance, yes, his organization is very much um, indebted to Aristotle. So in the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, <clears throat> question two is, uh, so the first part, question two is about whether God exists. So in, a, in an Aristotelian science, you proceed through, um, you know, like these kind of three methodological questions when you are establishing the basis for a science. So science is knowledge through causes. And so in order to get to that knowledge, you have to first prove that a thing is, and then you prove what it is, and then you show, you know, like whether it is, as it were, and then you kind of make demonstrations that it must be such. Um, so he has these four questions they're taken up in the latin tradition and they're they're posed as onsit whether it is quidsit what it is utrumsit like whether it is or how it is or basically you're kind of linking up the subject matter with its properties and then propter quid or uh, yeah propter quid you're making demonstrations so you're showing from the top down that this thing is as we have described it so st thomas actually i mean he organizes his theological treatise according to this so question 2 is is onset, whether God is. And then question three begins quidsit, like what God is. And there, I think that 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 should make a lot of um, people mildly uncomfortable. It's like, what you think, you can say, like you can sum up what God is. But St. Thomas is equally sensitive to that. So he begins that question by saying, we can't say what God is, right? Because we can only really have knowledge of God through his effects, right? So what he does and salvation history, and we reason back from those effects to God, but we can never make strict demonstrations because we can never have the type of knowledge of God that we can have of other things. Like, I can say that the definition of man is a rational animal, but I can't define God. God is beyond or above or entirely transcending my mind, you know, the compass of my mind. And so he says, we, we can't so much say what God is, quits it, but we can say how God is not. All right, so quo modo non sit. So maybe some listeners are are uh, aware of the distinction between like positive and negative theology, sometimes described as cataphatic and apophatic theology, right? So there's a real humility that informs what 
what St. Thomas is doing. So he's doing cataf- or excuse me, apophatic theology. So he's, he's kind of removing things from God. So those first, um, whatever it would be, nine questions that follow the demonstration of God's existence are all about removing limitations from God. Right, so divine simplicity is to say that God is not composed. And then he moves from there to perfection, to goodness, to infinity, to like eternity and immutability and omnipresence and unity. And what he's saying with each is he's, he's removing something. So with simplicity, God is not composed. With perfection, God is not limited. Right, with um, infinity, God is not circumscribed or bound. Uh, with omnipresence, God is not excluded. Uh, with eternity, uh, God enjoys whole and simultaneous per, uh, possession of endless life, so God is not time-bound, right? With unity, um, God is not divided, right? God is not disparate. So so all of these claims are very, very modest. Uh, they're very, very humble claims. Uh, what he's trying to do is just kind of keep at arm's length the types of um, like limitations which would obstruct us from knowing God and worshiping God. Uh, and in so doing, he, he kind of like, hones in on the mystery, but doesn't in any way seek to exhaust it or explain it away. Um, So I think that there you see, again, like a kind of worshipful or doxological movement uh, that informs it. And also St. Thomas is going to go ahead and apply this teaching um, in like a a kind of more properly theological setting in a variety of ways that become super important. I mean, we could talk about that later, but like this is huge for understanding the Trinity, for instance. It's huge for understanding the Incarnation. It's huge for understanding how God interacts with the world. It's huge for understanding, you know, like blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. Um, but it ends up being super, super important uh, because if you get God's God's nature wrong, right? Or if you introduce into God's nature certain limitations of our human mode of understanding, then you're just going to have big, big, big problems down the road. Thanks. I think framing this uh, under kind of like a doxological or worshipful category there is really helpful. And I think personally for me, before ever reading Aquinas, uh, which wasn't until a a historical theology class last semester, uh, it it was easy to kind of almost project like a post-enlightenment rationalist who like is just kind of thinking about God absent of actually caring about God just because of the way he writes and the things um, that you might hear about him. But then I think putting that in those categories just makes this a lot more accessible and makes it feel, um, especially to people that have what I think is often a good inclination of, hey, when theology gets too far from life, it can be unhelpful. Um, I, I think it's just helpful to to see that in uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and see that this isn't just um, him having too much time on his hands, that this is this is meaningful. And you mentioned earlier, and I so and you started to get back to this again, um, that for you, you know, you're somewhere on the spectrum between uh, this is like the most important thing and this doesn't really matter, but more towards this is really important. And so for my Catholic listeners, again, like this, well, one, it's important because if they want to be a Catholic in good standing, they have to, they have to give assent to this. Is that the proper language, assent? Um, yeah. Okay. But uh, on top of that, it's you know, I would like to think that it's not just arbitrarily so. Why is this important? And you started to say this is going to affect other things, and we'll get to that a little bit, or if you want to go there now. Uh, but why does this matter? Sure, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe we could just take a, a couple examples or an example or two. Uh, one, thing that I hel- a little, one thing that I think it's helpful for explaining, and, and maybe we should start here because it's the closest to our experience, is the relation of God to creation. Um, So you have some interaction problems when it comes to like, okay, how is God related to the world, but like not changed by it, for instance? Uh, Or you can really raise the, uh, what would you call it? Like raise the stakes and talk about it in terms of like the incarnation, the hypostatic union. How is the Lord Jesus Christ related to a human nature without the Godhead being thereby changed? as it were, okay? Because the problem with God changing is that um, conceived in a certain way, it seems to suggest that God was less than or could become better or was greater than and could become less because change seems to signify, in the way that St. Thomas describes it, some realization of a potency that formerly was not realized, okay? So like we think about it in terms of change of place, like I am in Switzerland, but I am potentially in Germany. Okay. So like all I would have to do would just be to 
purchase a train ticket, get on a train, four hours later, I could be in Germany. Um, but the fact that I'm not presently in Germany is, in a certain sense, a limitation to my being. All right. So we would say, like, you're not limited. You're doing great. You're like, you're just killing it in that one little place that you're at. Uh, but no, I mean, because of the fact that I am embodied, right, I can only ever be in one place, right? So in the sense that like my body is present to that place. I mean, I can think fondly of, you know, Newtown, Pennsylvania, from which I hail, or I can talk to somebody on the phone, but in the strict sense, I can only really be in one place. So that's a limitation. That's that's a way in which my nature limits being, and as a result of which, that is a way in which uh, I am in potency, all right? So like, we don't have to worry too terribly much about the language of potency and act because that's a longer conversation, but there's some part of my being that is remains to be realized. And by virtue of the fact that it remains to be realized, it signifies a limitation, okay? Now, we don't want to have any limitations in God, all right? Uh, why is that? Because we're just making him to out, out to be this like um, kind of pagan philosophical behemoth and we just want to attribute to him everything imaginable that's good? No, no, because, I mean, like, effectively, this this is super important for us when it comes to soteriology. Because, like, how does merit work, right? Okay, so like Jesus is of, you know, an unsurpassable charity and obedience and he suffers and dies for love of us. But like, why does that matter? You know, like how can one man merit for another? Because it seems like the reward would only be due to him. So when St. Thomas explains this, he says it's by virtue of the divine power, which can apply the merits of one man to that of another, right? It can apply the merits of the incarnate son of God to his brothers and sisters who have been incorporated into his body over which he reigns gloriously as head. All right. Now, if God, though, is not capable of wielding, as it were, or cannot exercise an infinite divine power, then we've got problems. All right. So so we need for God to be like very much soteriologically in charge. And if we start chopping up the divine being and sub- like kind of submitting it to certain limitations, then you know, it's, things kind of get scary as it were. I mean, like not to say that one should draw back from something because it's fearful to think about, but just simply to say that like, like, I mean, (laughs) I mean, are we saved at the end of the day or can we hope to be saved at the end of the day if God is somehow limited, right? Um, So if God is equally in need of orientation or actualization or salvation, then he can't give what he doesn't have, right? That's not to attribute sin to God, but to attribute limitation of a certain sort. So, um, yeah, so to bring it back then to the interaction between God and creation, right? God, by virtue of the fact that he is undivided, by virtue of the fact that he is not composed, is thereby able to interact with creation in a way that's far more intimate, in a way that's far more involved than might otherwise be, be the case, So when you think about like, all right, the way that Descartes describes the interaction between mind and body, basically Descartes thinks of both mind and body as things, right? So you've got thinking things and you've got non-thinking things. But once you begin to conceive of mind and body, both as on equal footing as things, then you have a real interaction problem. And then you end up with strange, you know, like considerations uh, vis-a-vis the pineal gland, like, all right, there has to be this particular pace at which they interface and things just get super wonky super quickly. Uh, but by virtue of the fact that God is simple, right, immaterially so, then um, St. Augustine goes on to describe how God is able to be more intimate to things than they are to themselves because God is present to them as giving them being, as giving them agency, and as a result of which all things are are transparent to God's gaze, right? So God is thereby able to be most intimate to creation. You have this kind of paradoxical idea where because he is most transcendent, there he is, thereby he is able to act most imminently. But you lose that. You lose that if you lose uh, your kind of handhold on divine simplicity, because once God is composed, then you have to account for that composition in God's world interaction. Uh, and if once you're doing that, then then things get super slippery super quickly. Thank you. I I think it's very refreshing, and I hope people find it refreshing that the terms being associated with divine simplicity so far, I mean, not the only ones, of course, but we've had intimate and doxological and worshipful. 
which if you were playing a word association game with me prior to this about divine simplicity, I don't think any of those would have come up. And so I, at least for me, that's, that's really helpful that, you know, we can see these connections. And I think that's really interesting to think about how God would interface with creation and all the problems that creates like you. And I think the um, mind and body one is an interesting way of kind of getting at that. Hopefully that will, uh, will make sense for people listening. You mentioned this earlier, and I think this is a place that I could see people thinking about. It's something that came to my mind uh, when I first heard about this idea of divine simplicity. You mentioned the idea of the Trinity. So how does divine simplicity relate to the Trinity? Now, none of us Orthodox Christians want to say that the you know three persons of the Trinity are parts of God, like they're each one-third God, but it might, at least at first glance, sound difficult to say, God is absolutely simple, and he's Father, Son, and Spirit. How, how do these ideas work together? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe, I, I think maybe the best setting for that is just to give like a, um, a just a short thumbnail sketch of what St. Thomas teaches about the Trinity, um, the philosophical concepts that he relies upon and how those help to explain the biblical revelation, and then just to, just to kind of show how divine simplicity is operative in that. So St. Thomas... Uh, relies heavily on the language of the Gospel of John, right? So this idea of ek poroesis, like a, a kind of proceeding forth from, which is enshrined in the creed, right? So we speak of uh, those processions of, you know, God's begetting the Son, the Father's begetting the Son, and then, uh, you know, like uh, the Holy Spirit's proceeding forth from Father and Son, if one accepts a filioque or just Father if one does not. Um. And St. Thomas uh, is especially indebted to St. Augustine's reception of this teaching. So St. Augustine has this long treatise on the Trinity, one of the, the only really long treatises on the Trinity in the Latin West. And um, so Boethius has one, and I want to say like Hilary of Poitiers has one. Uh, but St. Augustine's is certainly the, the most ample, um, and it's the most uh, speculative. And in chapters 13, 14, and 15, uh, he's going through a variety of options for analogies that he thinks might be suitable for explaining the most blessed Trinity. And he rules some out because he's, he's made a little bit nervous by them. And one of them is actually a familial image for the most blessed Trinity. So he says the Trinity would be like father, son, and child. But he says, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that because the child is apart from father and mother, right? So he's, he's worried about describing it with what he calls uh, transient actions, right? So actions that pass from the agent to some effect. He, he says, we, we really should explain it more in terms of imminent actions. So actions which in proceeding stay within the agent, because that, that most adequately reflects or most closely reflects what transpires uh, eternally in the life of the most blessed Trinity. So he, he uses this analogy of word and love. So he describes how God, uh, basically in thinking himself, has a thought that's so rich that's so fruitful, that's so fecund, uh, that it actually proceeds forth from him interpersonally. So God, in thinking himself, thinks of himself so powerfully, so potently, um, in a way that, you know, like we can kind of come to appreciate by analogy when you have a thought that's so strong, you know, it can like raise your heart rate or cause you to sweat or, you know, make you think fondly of another person. We'll think of God thinking himself and then thinking about that in a wholly immaterial way, uh, which again is the thought of being itself, right? And he says that that proceeds forth from him as a kind of conceptus, as a kind of concept, as it were, or what we would say in more scriptural language, you know, like the logos or the word. So God speaks forth this word, uh, but that God and the word kind of rush in as it were, or um, regard each other with a mutual love uh, such that together they would breathe forth the Holy Spirit. Um, so he uses this because it's based off uh, the um, the intellectual activity of thought and love, right? So to know and to love being things that can transpire within an intellectual agent, even in our own experience, our own limited experience. And he says, now, if we purify this of creaturely limitation, um, and, and then we would try to seek for some super eminent expression of it in the most blessed Trinity, then we begin to approach something of the mystery. Now, in this, what we have is effectively, you know, three divine persons, each of whom subsists in the divine nature, right? Uh, but as related to each other by virtue of the fact that they have different origins, right? So not origins in time, uh, but like 
as it were, origins in the most blessed Trinity. So the Father is unbegotten, the Son is from the Father, and the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son. So there's some distinction by way of origin. And St. Thomas says, in light of that distinction, there arises relations. So the Father relates to the Son after the manner of paternity. The Son relates to the Father after the manner of sonship. The Father and Son relate to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit relates to the Father and the Son. And he says, truth be told, you know, when you get right down to it, the persons of the Most Blessed Trinity just are those relations. So the Father is subsisting paternity. The Father is Godhead begetting the Son. The Son is Godhead begotten by the Father or being begotten by the Father. And the Holy Spirit is Godhead being breathed forth from the Father and the Son. So each is God, uh, but God as related to the other persons by virtue of their distinct origins. Okay. Now, I guess, you know, to kind of bring it back to divine simplicity, this is all contingent upon, as it were, or this is all indebted to uh, the unity of the divine nature, right? So it's, it's, it's especially important that the divine nature itself not be divided, because if it is divided, then you would, like you mentioned at the beginning, you'd have to really account for potential heresies that could crop up, like modalism, right? Or like partialism, which would be the biggest threat. Um, so if there are parts of the divine nature to be allotted, then you have to account for the fact that each of the divine persons has all of that part, as it were, um, or has that part equally. And then you begin to introduce a kind of divine calculus, which has never been present in the scriptural or the patristic or the medieval tradition, right? Um, because then it becomes, yeah, it it just becomes uh, very complicated, not to say that the, like the doctrine of the most blessed trinity is not complicated, but it becomes very involved in a way that seems just very counterintuitive to our scriptural and patristic sensibilities. Um, so basically, um, by, by having divine simplicity in place, it permits you to have uh, a greater sense for, a greater appreciation for, a greater grasp on the divine unity, so that that divine unity can act as a strong, strong pull at one end of your thinking, so as to, you know, counterbalance by its monotheistic force, the introduction of division, as it were, not real division, but distinction within the most blessed Trinity by virtue of the processions and the relations which arise, so that you can have this strong, strong pull of not tritheism, but Trinity or triunity, all right? And that you can not vacillate between, but hold both, as it were, strongly, strongly, strongly. But I think that this unity piece, this monotheistic piece, is you know, very much related to uh, or very much bound up with the simplicity piece. Because once you introduce division here, uh, my fear is that things begin to kind of break up. Yeah, I think that's helpful. You know, not exactly the word, but would you say the strong, strong pool or like the, almost the glue there that it keeps you from getting to kind of partialism there. And again, the more I think people can connect one doctrine to another and see how they relate to one another, the more theology starts to make sense rather than trying to have a bunch of silos where they're trying to keep track of how all of these things work. But when you see how they begin working together, um, hopefully I think it'll be easier for people to see why these things matter and even like what what they're getting at in relation to other things. Well, one uh, one final question area I wanted to ask with uh, divine simplicity. And thank you so much for this. This has been absolutely great. And I, I hope people enjoy it. Um, but but one other area, when we start talking about, and again, this could just be my lack of familiarity and uh, the terminology. But when, when we start talking about God as, you know, pure actuality, or God is to be to be, um, and it, it gets a little fuzzy to me how this relates to attributes of God. And so, you know, growing up in church, when you wanted to feel really smart, you learned like one of those, you know, $5 words like omnipotent or omniscient, and you felt really, really smart, and you were going to impress your Sunday school teacher. Um, but how does that work when we say that, you know, God is just, or not, I don't want to say just, but God is pure being. Can we properly talk about attributes of something that is pure being? How, how do those things work together? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, like, um, with respect to some of these uh, ones that I described at the top of the show, so divine unity or eternity or omnipresence or infinity or, you know, things along those lines, 
uh, what we're effectively saying is God is not this, that, or the other thing. So God is not limited in one way, shape, or form. So it's kind of it's kind of easy to see how those could be. Um, what would one say? Reconciled with uh, God's nature, as Saint Thomas says, "Ipsum esse per se subsistens." So very to be. So ipsum means like you know the the very the very thing. So very to be subsisting through itself. So when we when we take these divine attributes, which are just removing things from God, it's like okay, what we're what we're doing there is not qualifying the sense in which God is to be, but giving names, as it were, or um, uh, giving uh, a kind of description uh, for the manner in which God is. Um, now it becomes harder when we attribute what what we would call like positive names, right? So like life or love, or justice, things like that. Um, and when St. Thomas moves on to those questions in the Summa Theologiae, he does it only after a little interlude where he describes um, the limitations of our knowledge, basically, and then the way in which we name God. And when he when he talks about the way in which we name God, he cites this, uh, this passage from Pseudo-Dionysius, who's like a 5th, 6th century Syriac monk, who's writing under the pen name of Dionysius the Areopagite, who was, uh, you know, one of Paul's converts there uh, from whatever it was, Acts, gosh, 15, you know better than I do. Um, and um, and in that passage, uh, Pseudo-Dionysius talks about the threefold way by which we name God or by which we approach God. And he says, we follow the threefold way of first causality, then remotion, and then finally eminence. All right. So you'll sometimes hear them referred to by their Latin names. So the via causalitatis, the via remotionis or negationis, and then the via eminentiae. And what, what he says, it's, it's kind of like a, a therapy as it were, or like a theurgy. Uh, so, so you make this movement when it comes to divine naming. So you say first, okay, we can name God uh, by virtue of the effect that we perceive in creation. Okay. Um, so for instance, if I see a good thing in the world, I know that the effect in some way resembles its cause. It's like an old Aristotelian dictum, um, that everything that, that acts makes something like unto itself. So if it, if it is this way, we, we can some way attribute its goodness to God. All right. So, so we would say that God is good, but also we know that the good that we encounter here is limited. All right. So, uh, we don't want to attribute that limitation to it nor do we want to attribute the limitations that come with our, our manner of speaking, all right? So, so whenever we say, okay, there's a, there's a particular thing here that I'm naming, a particular attribute, um, uh, and on the one hand, there's the thing signified, but on the other hand, there's our way of signifying it. So when I say like, you know, you are good, I'm composing you with goodness. But by speaking that way, like you, subject to the sentence, are, you know, the copula, good, an attribute, Right, it seems to already signify that there's a kind of division, as it were, between you and the goodness. All right, because I'm attributing it to you in time and with this kind of unwieldy language. So we want to remove all of that from our attribution of goodness to God. All right, so we would say God is the cause of this goodness, so we somehow like it. Um, God, but God is not limited in the way that this goodness is limited, nor is He limited in the way that our speech would seem to signify. All right, so we want to remove those limitations from God. So that's the via negationis or via remotionis. But then the third and final move is to say that God is this thing, is like this thing, as it were, uh, but in a way that um, far surpasses it, in a way that um, transcends it uh, kind of like more than our own imagination can even conceive of, all right? So God is good, but, but good in a way that, you know, is, is the prime expression of goodness, really, uh, but in a way uh, by comparison to which this goodness is but a pale shadow. Right, so each of us has an earthly father, and we look at that father, and we see in him certain attributes that commend him as a father. But uh, you know, like God is father in a way that that really gives meaning to this limited example of fatherhood that transcends it and surpasses it. Uh, but it is also the very standard against which this limited fatherhood is um, is even judged. So when it comes to uh, divine attributes, again, uh, we have one the sense that God has given us this creation so as to know Him. Right. So we're able to reason upon it and reason back to him because of, you know, like the kind of language that's used in Romans 120, that they're all so much testimony, the visible things that we see to the invisible God. But then there's, again, this kind of movement of um, agnosticism. So we don't want to go and make a conceptual idol 
just because the creation is a, is a revelation of the goodness of God and it's ordered to his glory that might, we might return to him uh, in praise by, by surveying the many good things that he have made, he has made for our contemplation. We don't want to make of these things the Godhead as it were. So we need to be, we need to set aside the limitations lest they um, creep into our notion of God. But ultimately we affirm that it is, that's far beyond the compass of our minds. You know, the kind of last, the last movement there with respect to divine attributes um, is simply to say that we don't even know what we don't know, right? Like Donald Rumsfeld, there are the unknown unknowns, but we know just enough, right? Um, So I think about this in terms of like prayer. Uh, We have the sensibility that it's good to assume certain gestures. How do we know that? Well, in, in a certain sense, because it's been revealed to us, right? But also because we have access to it. Right, so in the Catholic tradition, obviously uh, our worship is uh, very much like altar-centered, is very much Eucharist-centered. Right? How do we know? Like, say you're in a period of Eucharistic adoration, how do we know that we should face the Eucharist rather than facing the left wall of the church or the right wall of the church? Right? We we can we can know these things with some modicum of certainty because God is revealed, but also because we're we're capable of knowing. All right, so so we don't want to be so agnostic or. Um, so self-effacing as to say like, well, really we can't know anything. It's in, it's in God's interest, you know, as it were that we can know some things so that he can make us happy, right? Unto the praise of his glory, because there's no real other way by which to account for the fact that God created us, um, except that we be happy unto the praise of his glory. So I don't think that I actually directly answered your question, uh, but I found myself following a variety of blind alleys and I ended where I did <laughs> No, I, I think that does answer it. And so for clarity, we can make positive statements. So like when the author of 1 John says, God is love, mm-hmm. he, we, we can say that. We can say that with him. Yep. But we don't want to limit God to our conceptions of love or say that, you know, that as uh, like it is a, a one-to-one, God is our conception of love. Um, so there, there's the sensibility of saying, well, it's, not precisely that, um, but we don't want to go so far as saying, but we can't make positive statements. It's, that is accurate. We, it's a, um, it's a fair thing to say, as long as we don't take that too, too far of an end. Is that fair? That was a not good characterization of the question I was trying to ask, but. I don't know. It's good. Yeah. I think that there's this kind of gentle blend of cataphatic and apophatic Mm -hmm. in the way that we speak about God. And I think part of the reason that we have the courage to say positive things about God is because God tells us to, right? Right. So no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, how do you know that Jesus is Lord? Because he's revealed it. Okay, well, how can we know what he's revealed? Because he's given us minds with which to receive that revelation. And as a result of which, we can, we can hold fast to it. And so I think that when it comes to divine naming, we're engaged in a similar enterprise. Like you said, like a lot of these words, they sound abstract, they sound deeply indebted to Hellenistic philosophy. Um, you know, some would accuse them of kind of corrupting the purity of biblical revelation. Uh, but but our minds are made for inquiry. God has written into our natures the tendency whereby we are to glorify him. And part of that means, right, that we are to think and reason upon his revelation. So like the word Trinity, for instance, it's not in the Bible, but I think most Christians would agree that that is a... Uh, a legitimate way by which to give expression to the mystery. I think it's like first introduced in the late, you know, uh, apostolic period or post-apostolic period with maybe Tertullian, you know, like the idea of Trinitas, right? But that's that's incredibly helpful for organizing our thought, our speech, and our worship. And that's effectively what we're doing in this kind of exercise. Awesome. Well, thank you for all of this. This has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed having you on. Glad uh, this worked out. Thank you for your time. I just want to uh, leave it with you to let you, if there's any final thoughts you want to share, and also just where people can find you and your work, uh, because I, I know many might be interested in that. Totes. Yeah. Final thoughts. Um, yep. Jesus is Lord. That's a final thought. Um, things that you can find on the internet. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I contribute to Pints with Aquinas. We have a weekly live, sh- I do a weekly live stream at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, yeah, you can just drop your questions in. If you join that live stream in like the first 10, 15 minutes, I usually get to your question afterwards. No promises, but probably not because I'm slow and I talk too long. Um, and then God's Planning is a podcast from uh, five Dominicans 
uh, five of us friends, and it's like a kind of miscellany of Catholic and Christian topics. So it might be like faith, it might be literature, it might be, um, you know, like COVID, it might be a variety of things, some of which are kind of contemporary, some of which are perennial. But the idea is basically that you can find God in all of the details of your life. So contemporary age, yep, but, uh, you know, with a contemplative disposition. So you can think about it as uh, as something along those lines. I think it's fun. I enjoy it. So um, yeah, check those out on any podcast app or on YouTube. I think that's it. Awesome. Well, I will leave links in the description for those for people to check out. Thank you once again. And thanks to everyone watching this sometime in the future. I do not take your time lightly. I really appreciate that. And I'll close as always by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And most importantly, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world.